Corinthians chapter 7. We're continuing our walk through 1 Corinthians. Are you a fan or a follower? Corinthians reminds us to sacrifice to self and to follow Jesus. And over and over it talks about the lordship of Jesus. We looked at Paul's address to the problems in Corinth and the things that they were facing and the struggles that they had. Do you know what the abbreviation DTR stands for? It stands for define the relationship. And so if a young couple uh, is together at some point in their relationship, they have to DTR. They have to define their relationship. Are we boyfriend, girlfriend, or are we just friends? And in every relationship, there comes that moment. Are we just casually dating each other or are we serious? And so in the lingo of the day, have you DTR'd yet is when you define the relationship. And in chapter 7, it's a lengthy chapter. We're going to cover it generally. But Paul, what he does is he defines the relationships. In chapter 6, Paul was addressing a Corinthian slogan. And the Corinthian slogan was this. I can have the right to do anything because God is not concerned about my physical body. I can do whatever I want with my physical body. And Paul said, no, 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 no. God is concerned about your physical body. It has a purpose and a plan. And the purpose and the plan is resurrection. You will have this body back again. So while you're in this body, you need to uh, operate in this body the way that's pleasing to God. And so at the very end of chapter six, he says, therefore, honor God with your bodies. And so today, we're looking at the other extreme. So that was on the one hand, it was that we can do whatever we want. And as with most things in life, the pendulum always swings to the other side. And the other side says this, is don't do anything. Everything is wrong. It's called ascetic. Asceticism means a refrain or a restraint. And so there was a tendency of some Christians to say, I can do whatever I want. And so they acted in ways that were contrary to God's plan and desire for their life. And the other side of the problem at Corinth was that you shouldn't do anything. And so they withdrew from the ordinary affairs of everyday life. They withdrew from marriage. They withdrew from family. They withdrew from certain foods and they withdrew from drink and they withdrew from socializing and they withdrew from sex and they withdrew from everything and they lived this life of asceticism. And so we need to understand this ascetic wing of the Corinthian church. Otherwise, as we walk through 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we can get the tendency or have the uh, uh, thing that Paul has this overly negative view of marriage and sex. And so what we have to understand is that Paul is addressing those in Corinth who had this question about uh, how to live life in this world as a believer. And so Paul, in his genius, what he does is he avoids both extremes. He doesn't say you have the right to do anything you want because some things that you do are, yes, you can do them, but they're not helpful. And in fact, they may become addictive. And on the other side, he says, now, wait a minute, for those of you who, when you become a believer, think that that means you withdraw from everything in life and don't do anything, that's not correct either. So Paul has this pastoral genius He walks this tightrope between both factions, between those who say you can do whatever you want and those who say don't do anything. 
And so that's really where we find ourselves today. And so Paul would have this this pro-marriage view of life. He was brought up in Judaism, and in Judaism you had uh, you got married, you had the 2.5 kids, you did all of that. That was the that was the thing in Judaism. And at the same time, Paul was single, and so he walks this tightrope between those two. He doesn't take either track. And so we have to understand that as we walk through chapter seven, that Paul is addressing the ascetic wing of the Corinthian church. How do we know that? Look at chapter 7 and verse 1. Now, for the matters you wrote about, news from Corinth came to Paul in a couple of ways. One was from Chloe's household. At the beginning, Chloe's household said, hey, Paul, there's some divisions here. And so Paul, for the first four chapters, addresses the divisions. And the Corinthians also wrote to Paul and said, hey, we need some help with some things. And so this is Paul's address when he says now to the matters you wrote about. He does that throughout Corinthians. And so what you see is in verse 1, it is this. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Or it is good for a man not to touch a woman. This is what they were writing about. This is what? It is the Corinthian slogan. It is the slogan of the ascetics. Paul is not saying to the Corinthians, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. What he's saying is, you wrote to me with this idea of asceticism that it is good for a man not to touch a woman. What some Corinthians were doing is they were promoting this kind of almost a monasticism among some Corinthians at Corinth. And so what happened was in the church, we had a group of folks who thought that they were more spiritual people were those who were the the ascetics, the, the celibates, those who would withdraw from everything. And so what they would say is, well, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. And what happens is when we make our own rules, we're the ones following the rules and we're the ones that use the rules to put other people down. And so Paul walks this tightrope. And the slogan was this. There is this place when we follow Jesus that you need to withdraw from everything. If, If even to the point where if men and women had a marriage, the ascetics taught it should just be a spiritual marriage. In other words, you just enter into marriage as kind of a brother and sister, but that's as far as it goes. And so what happened was these Corinthian Christians were trying to practice their holiness in the wicked Roman Empire. Now listen, we have a couple responses to the culture around us. The one side of the spectrum says, be fully integrated in culture. Don't ask any questions. Just do whatever you want because God's only concerned about spiritual things. And since culture isn't spiritual, you can do whatever you want. But the other tendency is, in reaction to that, is we tend to withdraw. And we, say, we tend to say everything is bad. Everything is evil. God uh, is the big killjoy in the sky. Doesn't, doesn't want us to enjoy anything. And so then we tend to withdraw. So that's where the ascetics were. The ascetics were, for you to be truly spiritual means do not touch. <laughs> no, 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 no. You devote your entire life to the Lord. Everything is about your relationship with Jesus. Nobody else matters. Nothing else counts. And so what Paul does is he's starting to address this in chapter 7. And we need to understand that that's what he's addressing because he's clearing up these Corinthian slogans. Paul is addressing this Corinthian slogan. And so what he's going to do is he's going to define the relationships. And so the Corinthians go through and they have questions about specific situations. And there's always a danger in our lives 
when we read the scripture, is to say, well, Paul's addressing this specific situation, so it applies to me. So what we're going to do is we're going to walk through and define these relationships, and then we're going to get some general principles that we can apply for our lives. And so the first group that he writes to are married people. And here's what he says to married people. He says, have sex. He's talking to the ascetics. And in this situation, the ascetics would say, we're married, but we're kind of like brother and sister right? We treat each other that way. And Paul's like, no, 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 you have a misunderstanding. He says sexual immorality is occurring. Each man should have sexual relations with his own wife. And you're like, well, why would Paul have to say that? Well, this is why. Because there were some folks who thought they were more holy because they were in a husband and wife relationship, but they were treating each other like brothers and sisters, right? But that's not what Paul's, Paul's addressing that. He says, no, you have, you have sex in your relationship. The husband should fulfill his duty, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority, but yields to her husband. The same way the husband does not have authority, uh, but yields to the wife. Listen, here's what Paul's doing. I know the church gets a bad rap sometimes on its, its view of women, but that was, that's a cultural view. That's not a biblical view. You need to separate the two. What is Paul doing? Paul is elevating the status of women. Look what he says. He says, husband and wife, you both have authority. In the culture of that day, wives had no authority. In the culture of that day, husbands could do whatever they wanted. And what does Paul say? Paul says this. He says, no, 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 no. Wife, you also have authority. See what he does? Counterculturally, he raises the status of women. And this is one of the first places in the New Testament where the idea of monogamy is preached. It's each each husband has a wife and each wife has a husband. So the polygamy of the Old Testament, I know maybe you perhaps stumbled over that. How did these guys have so many wives? It wasn't God's plan in the beginning. And now Paul brings us back to the beginning, one man and one woman. And so he says, here's what you do. You have this, you have this obligation to each other. Because the sexual uh, climate, because the passion is, is there's, a, there's a susceptibility to sexual immorality, it's very easy to fail God's uh, command in this matter. And so what he does is he deals with, this, with the ascetics as well. So what does he do? He says, okay, ascetics, those who say don't ever touch a woman, I'm going to concede to you as well. Paul uses this yes, but uh, analogy. He says, yes, but, right, we want either or. We want black and white all the time. But Paul's like, listen, so for those ascetics, yes, there are times when you can be apart, but that's only for prayer and in, this, in, in, in a mutually agreed upon situation, but then come back together. So do you know what Paul does? He walks this, he walks this tightrope. He's not appeasing those who say, I can do whatever I want. He's elevating the status of women and he's elevating the status of marriage. But he's saying also to the aesthetics, like you can have your way sometimes and not all the time because that's not what marriage is. And so Paul gives this, he defines this relationship and he's addressing, remember, those Corinthian things. Paul is currently single. In verse 7, he says, I wish that all of you were as I am. Paul, right? He says, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has this. Paul's a genius. He says, Here, here's how I am, but I'm not going to force my way on you. You have your thing, I have my thing. How much uh, better would the body of Christ be when we just let people be who they are in Christ instead of trying to force our opinions on them and force our ideas onto them and force our things onto them? Paul says, I'm single, you're married, great. I, w- it's, I wish you were like me, but you're not, so... You're married, so you fulfill those marriage obligations. Now, he goes on to the next group, and he talks to the unmarried and the widows. And here's what he says to them. Stay single, 
unless you want to have sex. That's what he says. He says to the unmarried and the widows, it's good for them to stay unmarried as I do, right? But if they can't control themselves, it's better that they marry than to burn with passion. Because for Paul, in the, in the biblical view of marriage, the biblical view of human sexuality is within the commitment of a one-man, one-woman relationship. That's the only biblically sanctioned uh, place for the expression of sexuality in Scripture. It's because there's a commit, committed thing there, and then the physical comes after. And so Paul says this, the unmarried and the widows um, stay like I am. However, if that thing happens, I'm going to define that relationship for you. And so Paul's going to go through each of these relationships. So here's what he says to the rest. It's, it's the un, to the, uh, those who are married and still are. What he's saying is, you need to stay married. Now, why would Paul say that? It's because... He says, to the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. So why would Paul say that? Because in the Corinthian church, there were people who were saying, because I'm now a believer, I need to be more spiritual. And now it's just me and Jesus. And so wife, you got to go because it's me and Jesus now. Sorry, honey, you're the third wheel on the bicycle. You got to go. And so, or the wife could say the same thing. Oh, now it's me and Jesus. My relationship is all me and Jesus. Guess what, buddy? You got to go. And Paul's like, no, no, no. That's not how this works. You were married before you came, became believers. And you say married after you became believers. Jesus is never to divide a marriage. Ever. Now, he has some tough talk. And we're going to get into that in just a, a, a little bit. But God's plan is husband and wife together. And he would never come in and sanction the separation. I don't care how much you love Jesus. That's never the cause for a separation. That's what Paul says. He says, some of you ascetics, you, you know that whole thing? You're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. You need to get your head out of the clouds and start living in reality. And that's all he's saying. So to the married, he says, you need to stay married. Those who are already married. Now, a couple times Paul says in Corinthians, not I, but the Lord. All he's saying is this. And, and sometimes people struggle that. They say, well, this is just his opinion. I don't need to listen to it. All Paul's saying is, we have commands from Jesus that we know Jesus said. And all Paul is saying, I'm not quoting Jesus specifically here. I, as an apostle who have the truth of inspiration, I am giving you the Lord's command. So my authority is just as much as Jesus' authority. The red letters in your Bible do not carry more weight than the black letters in your Bible. It's all inspired by God. And that's all Paul is saying. Paul is saying there is not a quote from Jesus I'm quoting, but I'm giving you as an authoritative apostle, this is as binding as the words of Jesus himself. And so to the already married, he says, don't become so super spiritual that you, that you give up your marriage. You got, it's, that's not how it works. But then he goes on to the next phase and he says, to the rest, I say this. I, here he says, I, not the Lord, right? So he's, he's not quoting Jesus directly. And so what he talks about is this believer-unbeliever marriage. So what happens in a relationship when two non-believers, one becomes a believer and one is not a believer? Well, here's what Paul says. He defines the relationship. He says, stay married. Same thing. 
In fact, he qualifies this. He says, a wife who is not a believer, she is willing to, must not divorce him. A woman who has a husband must live with her, for the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through the wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through a believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. Listen, whatever Paul's talking about, and that verse is very hard to understand, he is not talking about salvation, first of all. He is not saying that an unbelieving husband a uh, wife is going to be saved by her believing husband. We don't carry anybody on our coattails into heaven. It's only by a personal relationship with Jesus. What Paul is saying is sanctification is what? Is holiness. What he says is, in an unbelieving, believing marriage, you're not dirty because you're married to an unbeliever. That's all he's saying. The children that you have from this union, they're okay. They're going to have to make their faith decision based on Jesus as well. But because you as a believer, you're not somehow tainted because you're married to an unbeliever. And that's what he's saying. He says, if you're in this place, if the unbeliever leaves, you let him. But if you, as the believer, you don't have that choice. Why? Because our first call is to God. Our first call is to Jesus and to his authority and to surrender to him. And he says, how do you know? You don't know. There's no guarantees that a believing spouse and an unbelieving spouse, that the unbelieving spouse will become a believer through the uh, believing spouse. But you never know. But here's one way that that unbelieving spouse will never believe you leave. They're never going to be a believer at that point. And so, Paul, listen, Paul is not, is not saying that any of this is easy. He's not saying that any of this is, is, um, is, is delightful in any sense. But that's what it means to be a fan or a follower of Jesus. The whole thing about Corinthians is this. We need to deny self and get over self and our desires and our wants and put God and his desires first. And that's why we are called to be followers and not just fans of Jesus. When we embrace the gospel, it means something different for our lives, but we have to be very careful about what, how we treat the relationships around us. I've seen people, very, very supposed spiritual people through the years, who suddenly come to know Jesus. And all of a sudden, because they know Jesus, they are the most miserable person to be around. They just think they're a little better than everybody else now that they know Jesus. They look down on everybody else. And their relationships are suffering because they think that because they're following Jesus, they just need to kick everybody else out of their lives. And that's not how this works. Jesus is in us. He is a, he's in us as believers. And so Paul is addressing each... You can hear, almost hear the Corinthians. They're writing to Paul. I'm married to an unbeliever. Can you ask Paul what I'm supposed to do? And so what does Paul say? You stay where you are. Because you as the believer will influence the unbeliever. Paul uses these social uh, circumstances as illustrations in in verses um, 17 to 24. And he says, listen, when you become a believer, you don't change your social position in order to somehow try to figure out some advantage spiritually. Now, the change from idolatry and immorality, absolutely, we need to change those things. But Paul is saying, when you have the call of God to salvation, when you have this call, it doesn't mean you need to upend everything in your life, especially those institutions and those places that God has ordained. Marriage and family. In fact, what he says is, it's kind of hilarious when you think about it. He says, when you, were you uncircumcised when you were called? Then don't become circumcised. But then he says the opposite. Now, I don't know about you, but there is no way this is going to work. 
Paul says, were you already circumcised when you were called? Don't try to become uncircumcised. Paul, he's using some sarcasm. He's using some humor. And all he's saying is those places that we find ourselves in, he is, dis- he is discouraging these Christians from taking sudden drastic actions to change their lives as if altering our external circumstances was going to please God. So it's like the person who's in the, who has a job and they become a believer and then all of a sudden they say, you know, the only way that I can serve God is if I go to seminary and I become a preacher. That's Paul's exactly saying the opposite. No, you don't need to do that. You're not somehow more spiritual if you leave your job and then go to seminary and become a preacher. That's not, Paul say, no, that's not how this is in the kingdom. You stay where you are. Does that mean you never change jobs? No. Does that mean you never try to get ahead? No, he's not saying that. But he's saying that when we become believers, it doesn't so upset the apple cart in our lives that somehow we are now more spiritual because we're doing things. Because how we treat others and the love or the non-love we have for people is an indication of our love for God. And so somehow Paul is warning that when I love Jesus, I better be loving the people around me like Jesus or I don't really love Jesus. You love Jesus only as much as the person you love the least. Did you know that? The person in your life that you love the least, that's how much you love Jesus. We always want to put the people at the top, our spouses and our kids, but that's not how God works. And so Paul says that you don't do these drastic things in your life to somehow be more spiritual. Listen, your spiritual life is lived out in the relationships in your life. Paul's point is this service to Christ and how we offer our lives to Christ. Well, then he goes on and he talks about the unmarried and virgins. And and so here's what Paul says. He says, stay single because marriage has its own problems. Paul's saying, I would like you all to be like me. I'm single. But remember, some of you are married. Some of you have an unbeliever believing marriage. And then for some of you, you're not married. So Paul, in his pastoral genius, says, stay single because marriage has its own problems. In fact, he goes on and he talks about this divided loyalty and he talks about the, the, the concern. And he says, but listen, if you do that, you, uh, you don't sin. So if you are engaged to get married and, you, and you, uh, you're pledged to win and you want to break off the commitment, that's fine. If you want to get married, that's fine for others. And he says, I would like you to be free from what? Free from concern. A married, an unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of the world. There's this divided interest. And so all Paul is doing is giving us some pastoral advice because he's saying that marriage is good and it's desirable, but there's also this desirability for singleness as well. And believers should remain in whatever situation they were in when they were called to salvation. Because Paul says there's this present distress. The time is short. This life isn't all that there is. And he says marriage is good, but so is singleness. And I'm not so sure we've communicated that through the years. We tend to communicate, oh, now you're a believer. Now you need to get married. Now you need to have kids. Now you need to do this. And we've not validated both of those places. And that's what Paul's doing. He's defining each relationship. And each relationship is is specific to the people involved and to their giftedness. Some have the giftedness of singleness and some don't. And Paul's saying, however God has designed you, that needs to be your 
relationship. And so what he says is, he uses this as if or though model all throughout this thing. He says that a man's interests are divided and an unmarried woman is concerned about the Lord's uh, affairs. And so he says in verse, um, let's back up to uh, verse 29. The time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they don't. Those who mourn as if they did not. As if, as if, as if. Paul says, in your current life, You look to the future always. The things in this life are passing. But he's saying you don't give it all up either. You just hold it very loosely in light of eternity and in light of our commitment to the Lord. He says, live as though you had none. He's not saying that you just ignore your spouse. But what he says is you get your priorities right. That your priorities are that the Lord is returning, that Jesus is coming back. He says, don't put all your investments, money, energy, time, and loyalties into this world. And we, again, should note how Paul balances the references to men and women throughout this section. The woman is considered fully equal and responsible person on all these matters containing to marriage and singleness. Paul is elevating the status of women. And he says they both have choices in this. These instructions, again, are meant to not be moral, but they are practical because Paul says these are for your own good. What Paul is really condemning is a married bachelor who avoids his family obligations, maybe even for the best of reasons. So Paul is is, um, cautioning the person in Corinth who's the married bachelor that all, now, my life now is all about the church, and my life now is all about serving Jesus, and my life now is all about the kingdom. Oh, I have a wife and kids back here, but that's okay because my priority is now the church. And Paul's saying, no, that doesn't cut it. Your priority is both. Jesus is ultimate, but you also have obligations. And so he's saying that you need to uh, define the relationship that you are. In the next section, he, he talks about the engaged. And he says, uh, get married if your passions are too strong or don't. <laughs> you know, I love Paul. He's like, so for those of you that are engaged and you have somebody uh, you're, you're, you're engaged to, he's like, if your passions are too strong and uh, you, you find that you're acting improperly toward each other, you need to get married. But if that's not your case, don't get married. Don't you love the freedom that Paul gives us in our lives and in our relationships? He really does. And we want to make everything and we want to put people in boxes and we want to. And that's why he goes through in this long chapter and talks about all of these various situations. Holidays are coming up. You go to grandma's house and grandma says, have you found a good man yet? Have you found a good woman yet? And inadvertently, what's grandma saying? Somehow you're not a person unless you find somebody else. And Paul says, what? No, you're fine just the way you are. So you tell grandma, no, Paul said, I'm fine. (laughs) I got a word from the Lord. My situation is good. I don't need a man or a woman right now. That's all all Paul is saying. He says that if you're engaged, it's it's about your passions or, or otherwise don't. And so engaged couples should not be compelled to to have this pro-celibacy side in Corinth, or they should not be 
uh, propelled to go the other way and say, you know what, everything we do is fine. God doesn't care what we do. And so he talks again about this single life, but Paul doesn't legislate the single life. What he says is, a man who marries is right, but he doesn't marry is does better. He's like, I want you to be like me, but I understand not everybody's like me, so you be you. And the last group that he talks about are widows. And he says to the widows, a woman is bound as long as he lives. If her husband dies, she's free to marry as she wishes. But he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she's happier. She stays as he is. And once again, Paul in his pastoral wisdom says what? To the widows, it's you're happier if you're single. But if you want to get married, marry a believer. Uh, this is a widow, right? A person who's a woman whose uh, husband has died. And he says he's addressing a specific case of a wife whose husband has died. And, and she's, call, and she's uh, talking, uh, requesting from Paul, should I get married or not? And what does, Paul, what does Paul not say? He doesn't tell her yes or no. He says, here's what you need to do. You need to evaluate your life. You'll be happier if you're single you'll probably be happier if you get a little lap dog. But if you can't settle for the lap dog, marry a believer. That's what he's saying. You look at your life and you make the most of your life. And so he says that I would prefer this, but I understand that maybe you don't prefer that. And so you want to get married. Isn't there a breath of fresh air now as we look through 1 Corinthians chapter 7? And it is not Paul saying you need to do this and you need to do this and you need to do this and you need to do this. What Paul is saying is you need to define your relationship. Where am I? What is my current relationship status? I need to define where I am. And these are some general guidelines I want to give you for your life. Paul reaffirms uh, right, monogamy for as a lifelong commitment, one man, one woman together. And if you notice, even at the end of chapter seven, Paul then is giving the woman the choice, right? And so again, this countercultural view that she has the, she has the right and the choice in her life. And so let's look at some guidelines now that we can, uh, we can, uh, apply to our lives as we walk through all these situations. Here's the first one. God is more concerned about your sexual morality than your marital status. It's just true. Paul's advice here is not unconditional. He allows movement and room for different places and different people in life. But he says, celibacy is preferable. You might be happier single. (laughs) Talk to a married person. You will be happier single. But maybe that life's not for you. And marriage is, is for you. But what Paul is saying is, it doesn't matter if you're single or married. God isn't concerned about your marital status. He's concerned about your sexual morality. We just came off of chapter 6, and now we're in chapter 7. And so what does Paul say? Paul says to, to, to the marrieds, don't act like you're celibate. And he says to the singles, don't act like you're married. That's what he's saying. And that's what God is concerned about. And he says, a, a life of fornication. And remember in Corinth, it could have, been, uh, could have been prostitutes and temple prostitutes. It could have been a, a harem, a concubines, whatever it is. It's unacceptable to Paul. And so in our lives, listen, God is more concerned with your sexual morality than your marital status. Marriage. Uh, sexual morality is within the confines. One man, one woman in the covenant of marriage, period. It makes it pretty easy when you think about it. Everything else that falls outside of that is what the Bible calls uh, fornication or porneia, those sexual immorality. So Paul makes it very easy. I only have to know one instance where it's okay scripturally. Everything else is not. 
I define my relationship in light of that. And so Paul gives us this freedom in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 at different places in life to be who you are, but you always honor God no matter what the place is. The second thing that Paul wants to tell us is this. Singleness is an honorable status in the kingdom. It just is. I'm sorry if you're single and you have heard inadvertently from the church that you are less than a person because you're not married. That is not true at all. You are a whole person and have value and can contribute to the kingdom in very real and awesome ways, regardless of not being married. And we have made folks in the church perhaps feel intentionally or unintentionally that they are less than because they don't have a spouse. And so Paul is saying, no, singleness is an honorable status. You are not broken. You don't need fixed. You don't need a mate. You don't need a date. You honor the Lord with your situation. I know it's unusual for us in our culture to think about um, unmarried people giving their lives to the Lord and giving their service to the Lord. But that is what Paul is saying. So the bride and the groom, if you think about it, reflect God's love for the church, right? Jesus' love for the church. But singleness reflects God's universal love. The love that Jesus has for the church is reflected in marriage, but the love that God has for the world is reflected in singleness. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. See the two different things? So whether you're single, John 3, 16 is you. For God loved the world. When you're married, it's Ephesians 5 for how Christ loved the church. Both are equally honorable and reflect the love of God for other people. So don't let your status speak to your worth or your honor in the kingdom. You have honor even if you are single. The third thing that Paul tells us is conversion to Christ does not require a change in social status. We don't have a change in social status for spiritual improvement. So what Paul says, in whatever situation you find yourself, married or unmarried, upper class, lower class, white collar or blue collar, what is important is keeping God's commands and doing his revealed will. That is what is important. Paul is saying is not saying, now that you become a believer, you are somehow more spiritual if you are the supervisor instead of the person at the bottom. That's not what he's saying. And inadvertently, haven't we maybe picked that up from the church that sometimes those who are successful in life perhaps are a little more spiritual. They're a little more blessed. They're a little closer to God. And Paul wants to dispel that myth once and for all. Your status in life does not dictate your status with the Lord. You are loved by God. You are worth and valuable to God regardless of wherever you find yourself in life. What's interesting is that we are in places in life, we are in those places only in the context with which, where we live. So you move to any other place in the world, and the status would not mean the same thing in another part of the world. And so that's why this universality of Paul's message is it applies to everyone everywhere. 
Different cultures have things that they value. And what Paul is saying, you value the things of the Lord. And the things of the Lord is when you become a believer, you don't have to change your social status in order to appear or to think you're more spiritual. It, it, just, it just doesn't work like that. And so we as a believer can work in a secular job doing the thing and you are you are still as spiritual as a missionary because you're really on the mission field as well in your workplace you are there and you have an opportunity to impact people in that workplace and paul is saying you don't have to become a missionary when you become a believer you just be the best believer where you are i don't care if you're selling cars or cutting hair or flipping burgers you be the best believer where you are. There's nothing more spiritual about changing. Imagine if believers took that on in their lives, to be the best believer and witness wherever we were. That somehow I don't have to look for a spiritual job because the job you have is spiritual. Because you are spiritual. You have the Holy Spirit in you. And so the only thing we have to caution ourselves is, is there are some immoral jobs that perhaps believers need to pull themselves out of, right? So uh, drug dealing, prostitution, uh, theft. So there are some things that we're not talking moral things. We're just talking those amoral things that, that God leaves up to us. And so he says, conversion to Christ, when you stay where you are when you're called and you just be the best believer where you are, you're going to be salt and light wherever you are. The fourth thing he tells us is singled or married, there's to be an urgency about the Lord's work. Paul, in this chapter, says that, that we should live now very loosely with the things of this world. And all of his instructions are shaped by the future event of Christ's return. And what he says is, you stay where you are and serve and obey God. It doesn't mean you should never change jobs, right? It doesn't mean that you should uh, uh, advance yourself. But what he's saying is you don't do that because of being more spiritual, right? You can, there's nothing wrong with that. But what Paul is saying is everything needs to be viewed in the light of Jesus' return. Think about all the stuff we work so hard for in this life. What happens when Jesus returns? It's all burn up just like that. Think about all the relationships that we work so hard and fuss and fume for. When Jesus returns, we are going to be in different states of relationships with everybody. And all the stuff we get so worked up about now is going to be different when Jesus returns. And that's what Paul says in chapter 7. He says, I want you to view this, this future thing that's coming. That this world, he says, in its present form is passing away. It's fading away. And yet we live our lives so worried and worked up about this world and its present form. And Paul's saying, listen, yes, you need to be the best believer you can be. You need to, you need to bring uh, order out of chaos. It's our cultural mandate, but hold it very loosely. It's going to pass away. So that focuses our priorities on the things that are important. And what are the things that are important. It's the relationships in our lives. It's the relationship with the Lord. And so Paul says that there is to be an urgency about the Lord's work. And all he says through chapter 7 is this. If you're single, have an urgency about the Lord's work. If you're married, have an urgency about the Lord's work. If you're widowed, have an urgency about the Lord's work. It doesn't matter where you are in life. 
have an urgency about the Lord's work because the Lord could return at any time. And Paul always has that in view, is that every generation lived with the hope of Jesus returning. And so he says, we are about the Lord's business. We are about his work so that when he returns, what do we want to hear him say? Well done, good and faithful servant. Not well done, good and faithful spouse. Not well done, good and faithful son, good and faithful daughter, good and faithful parent, good and faithful boss, good and faithful employee. He says what? Well done, good and faithful servant. means we are serving him. And so we live with that in view. And you know who we serve? We serve people in our lives as well. And this is where Paul is cautioning against believers and unbelievers or the, or the, or the spiritual bachelor who wants to be, who's married, but only view, it's everything's about Jesus. Listen, you serve Jesus by serving those in your life. Remember Jesus said uh, to his disciples, and they said, Lord, when do we give you water? When do we give you something to eat? And, and what did Jesus said? When you do for what? The least of these, you do it for me. Which means when we serve others, we're serving Jesus. So we can't serve Jesus without serving others. And you know who the others are in our life? You start at the closest place. It's your spouse. It's your family. It's your friends. It's your church. It's your community, right? We keep going out. But we serve Jesus by serving people. I can't serve Jesus if I'm not serving people. That's what he says. You need to define the relationships in your life. Every relationship in your life is an opportunity for you to serve Jesus. You know that irritating spouse? opportunity to serve Jesus. You know the irritating neighbor? Opportunity to serve Jesus. What did Jesus say? When you are kind, what's God going to do? Pour burning coals on their head. Now, you are not to put burning coals on their head. You are kind, and you are serving, and you let God take care of that. And Paul says, what he says is, but there's got to be this urgency about the Lord's work. And we, we spend a lot of our life and a lot of our time worrying and concerned and manipulating and living in relationships. We just, how many times have you thought, man, life would be great if I could just live on a desert island by myself? <laughs> you know there's no Grubhub on desert island, right? You can't call for pizza on the desert island. You're going to have to crack your own coconuts and make your own food, right? It's not all that we think it's going to be. But life is about relationships. And Paul says you need to define those, what? In the light of Jesus, in the light of Jesus' return. So are we serving those in our lives, those who are closest to us? Paul says when you become a believer or you are a believer, you don't jettison all those relationships. You are actively urgency about the Lord's work in those relationships. We just are. You say, well, that's hard. Yeah, that's why it's valuable. That's why it's modeling Jesus. Do you think it was easy for Jesus to go to the cross? Do you think it was easy for Jesus hanging there, said, Father, forgive them? Do you think it was easy for Jesus to wash the feet of Judas? You know, Thanksgiving's coming up in a couple weeks, and you're going to have some Judases perhaps around your table, and people that are maybe a little hostile. Yeah, you think that maybe Satan's entered their heart, right? All that stuff. But isn't that the model of Jesus? Is to serve and to wash those feet? And what do we do? And that's, what are we doing? We are more like Jesus in those moments than perhaps we are sitting here today. And so that's what he says. There's this urgency about the Lord's work. The final thing that we understand from Scripture is this. Our relationship with the Lord defines all other relationships. Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 27, says this. Now great crowds accompanied him. You know, there's always a lot of fans of Jesus. There's always a lot of great crowds of following Jesus. 
And he turned to them and said, and this is where he separates the fans from the followers. Jesus had lots of crowds, but he always whittled them down to those who were truly committed to him. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You say, yes, there it is, Jesus. I'm in love with you, and that means I don't have to care about anybody else. It's not what Jesus is saying at all. What Jesus is saying, your love for me needs to be so much that when I look at the love you have for other people, it seems like hate. But Jesus is not sanctioning hate. And what he's saying is, he's not saying because you love me that you can jettison every other relationship. Because what does he say? He says, you need to what? Hate others in relationship to me. But we always miss that little point. Yes, even his own life. Oh, there it is. Jesus, you are the master, just like Paul at walking that tightrope. Because some people can think, when I come to Jesus, I need to give up every relationship in my life and only love him, and I don't care about you. And Jesus is like, no, you're missing the point. You need to hate your own life as well. <laughs> what does that mean? That means that we deny ourselves. We take up our cross. And what does our cross mean? It means that we die to self, that we give up our wants and our desires. And what does that mean in the process? That we are serving others. That's what Jesus' cross was. Jesus picked up his cross to deny himself in order to serve us. Jesus never gives us an out. His relationship, our relationship with him defines every other relationship. And so our relationship with him is never an excuse to trample people in our lives, to run over people in our lives, to jettison people in our lives. What our relationship with him does is it turns it right back around on us. And Jesus says, you take up your cross and you do the hard thing and you deny yourself. And then you're a true follower. I bet you some of those people in that crowd are just like us. Well, Jesus, what do you think you're saying? I don't think I like this. I don't think I want to follow you anymore. And Jesus is always in that separating business. He's separating those true disciples from those who are just in it for all the fun and the games and the fireworks and all of the things that accompany him. So first thing we need to do is define our relationship with Jesus. Jesus, how, what is my relationship with Jesus? Is he the ultimate relationship of my life? And then I need to define the relationship with myself. Paul says this, he says that you hate yourself. We don't abuse ourselves. That's the, that's the Corinthian problem that our bodies don't matter. But what he's saying is you are detached from your needs and your wants and you start serving other people. You take up your cross and then you can be my disciple. Have you defined your relationship? I know we all in this place today are in different places in life. We just simply are. Single, married, divorced. We fill the gamut. And those overarching principles are the same that apply to the Corinthians. That my love for God is displayed in my love for people. My love for God means that I serve people because it always comes back around. And Paul is cautioning us that somehow we're some super spiritual believer if we never have contact with others. 
if I just ignore the people in my life that God has placed there? That's not loving Jesus. That's loving me above Jesus. In my life, when I have people I just want to write off and I say, I don't care, that's putting me above Jesus. But when I love Jesus above me, what does Jesus say? Take up your cross. It's, it's the hard way. It's the narrow way. It's the self-sacrificial way. It's the way that may even lead to death. It's the painful way. God came to earth in a body. Last week we talked about our bodies matter. We live in this earth in our bodies. How we relate to other people in these bodies matters. So God wants us to avoid both extremes. We say, you know what? My body doesn't really matter. It's all about my soul. The ascetics would say, well, you know, it's all about, it's all about withdrawing and just being clean. God's always in the middle. Jesus, the incarnate one, came in the flesh, lived among people, and ministered to people. And he just calls us to be like Jesus wherever we find ourselves in our lives. Married, single, widowed, engaged. Lord, what's your will and your desire for my life? Would you please stand and we're going to pray.